Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Barnabas the Encourager. It's based upon the lectionary text for Sunday, April 12, 2015. Barnabas wasn't even his real name. His real name was Joseph, a name that bespoke his Jewish ancestry. But Joseph so distinguished himself among the earliest believers that they nicknamed him Barnabas, which in Greek means son of encouragement. Barnabas had a reputation for coming alongside people, especially sketchy people, with consolation and comfort. He was a bridge builder who brought people together. He had your back in tough times. We meet Barnabas for the first time in this week's reading from Acts chapter 4. There we read how he sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. As a leader in the post-resurrection community of Jesus' people, he was, as the poker expression puts it, all in. He didn't hold back or hedge his bet. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says that Barnabas refused financial assistance as an itinerating apostle and instead worked to support himself. The next mention of Barnabas in Acts 9 describes his pivotal role in the conversion of Paul. This part of his story requires a bit of backtracking. In his autobiographical remarks, Paul describes his former self as a violent fanatic who tried to exterminate the early Christian movement. He supported the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Breathing threats of murder, he collaborated with authorities to track down believers from house to house, drag them back to Jerusalem, and imprison them in an effort to make them renounce their faith. In Galatians, Paul wrote, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And to the Corinthians, Paul admitted that he didn't deserve to be called an apostle and was at best the least of the apostles, because of his violent past. To the Philippians he bragged, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Even as an old man, Paul was haunted by memories of his abusive past. Near the end of his life, when he wrote to his protege Timothy, he regretted how he had formerly been a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. So, when rumors that Paul had converted trickled back to Jerusalem, the leaders there were justifiably skeptical. Paul writes in Galatians, People only heard the report, The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Luke describes how believers were astonished at these conversion reports. Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on his name, 
And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? When Paul did show up in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. Enter Barnabas. Barnabas vouched for Paul. The son of encouragement reconciled him with the wary leaders in Jerusalem. And from then on, Barnabas and Paul ministered together throughout Asia Minor. When news reached Jerusalem that the Gentiles in Antioch were following the Jewish Jesus, they dispatched Barnabas to them as their emissary. They discovered him to be a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Luke writes that he encouraged them and brought Paul from Tarsus back to Antioch for an entire year. It was in Antioch with Barnabas that the disciples were first called Christians. And when the believers in Antioch collected money for famine relief, they entrusted their gift to Barnabas and Paul. Luke then concludes this Antioch story with a telling detail. At the end of their year together, Barnabas and Paul returned to Jerusalem, taking with them John, who was also called Mark. The young Mark later joined Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Luke describes him as their quote-unquote helper. This was no trip for the faint-hearted. Barnabas and Paul trekked 1,400 miles planting churches across Asia Minor. They experienced opposition and persecution all along the way. In Lystra, Paul was stoned and left for dead. Early in this grueling journey, Mark dropped out and returned to his mother's house in Jerusalem. We don't know why. Mark, the helper, apparently wasn't very helpful. In Paul's eyes, Mark was a quitter. He was unreliable, and so he threw him under the bus. When Paul proposed to Barnabas a second missionary journey, they argued about what to do with Mark. Paul refused to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. That might be true, but it feels harsh, especially when you consider how Barnabas defended Paul before the dubious leaders at Jerusalem. Barnabas, the encourager, insisted on taking Mark with them. Maybe it was because they were cousins and blood was thicker than water. Maybe Barnabas saw something other than a ministry failure. Maybe he knew that failure need not be fatal, and that every last one of us needs second chances. Whatever the case, Paul and Barnabas had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left. Once again, Barnabas the encourager had lived up to his name. The story of his sharp disagreement with Paul is the last mention of Barnabas 
in the book of Acts, consoling a young, failed ministry helper. Mark might have disappeared from the early Christian story were it not for Barnabas. But in three subsequent footnotes to this saga, Paul admits that Barnabas was right, and he had been wrong. In Philemon 1.24, Paul refers to Mark as his quote-unquote fellow prisoner, which means that Mark had later rejoined Paul's team. In Colossians 4.10, Paul describes Mark as the cousin of Barnabas, and then says, parenthetically, you have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. <coughs> we don't know what those instructions about Mark were, but Paul's remark shows that the Colossians knew that Mark was in Paul's dog's house. But now the relationship was mended, and Paul wanted to be sure that the Colossians knew that and that they treated Mark appropriately. And third, there's 2 Timothy 4.11, written when Paul was an old man and near the end of his life. He tells Timothy, Do your best to come to me quickly. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. The junior helper who had deserted Paul is here described once again as helpful to the senior missionary. The story of Barnabas provokes questions about counterfactual or hypothetical history. What if Barnabas had never vouched for Paul or failed in doing so? But the connection was made and Paul eventually traveled 10,000 miles spreading the good news of the love of God. No one shaped the future of the Jesus movement more than Paul. And what if Barnabas had not encouraged Mark, and he hadn't later rejoined Paul and gone on to write one of our Gospels? But thanks to Barnabas, he did. Barnabas's legacy flourished long after his death in various traditions surrounding his name. Some people identified him as one of the 70 apostles in Luke, 10, chap Luke chapter 10, verse 1. Tertullian said that Barnabas wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. The non-canonical epistle of Barnabas from the end of the first century is often ascribed to him. And then there's a 5th century text that mentions a so-called gospel of Barnabas. Tradition says that he was martyred in his home country of Cyprus. These are all historical conjectures that scholars debate. What's not debatable is Barnabas's legacy as a conciliator. And among believers who too often shoot the wounded, we need more encouragers like Barnabas today. For books this week, 
we review a title called America's Pastor, Billy Graham and the Shaping of a Nation. The author is Grant Wacker. Cambridge, Harvard University Press, 2014, 413 pages. By the time that Billy Graham retired from public ministry in 2005, he had shaped the religious landscape of modern America more than any person except, perhaps, Martin Luther King, Jr. After graduation from Wheaton College in 1943, then his 1949 crusade in Los Angeles, by the 1950s he was a national personality. Grant Wacker's book is not a conventional biography. He explores larger questions like how and why Billy Graham matters, how he shaped evangelical religion, and how evangelical religion related to American culture. He looks at Graham through eight interpretive lenses. Graham is preacher, icon, southerner, entrepreneur, architect, pilgrim, pastor, and finally, patriarch. Wacker admits that he's sympathetic to his subject. He almost always gives Graham the benefit of the doubt. But he's not uncritical. There's no meaningful criticism of Graham that he does not raise. Graham, he says, made serious mistakes, most notably his odious remarks about Jews that were released on the Nixon tapes in 2002. His preaching could be powerful, but also soporific. He was a person of genuine humility who also mastered the art of self-promotion. He liked to call himself a country preacher while befriending, befriending 11 successive presidents and some of the wealthiest and most powerful people in the world. He projected the image of a family man, but was an absentee father who traveled eight months a year. He built the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association into a $100 million a year empire, then made his son Franklin the president and CEO. These and other contradictions have many, generated many polarized interpretations, and yet Billy Graham is routinely listed as one of the most admired people in the world. Wacker, Wacker argues that he was a man of uncompromised integrity and manifest sincerity. Graham changed his views on various issues across the decades. He expressed his regrets. He admitted his mistakes and tried to learn from them. He never pretended to be a scholar or an intellectual. In short, he was, for his generation, America's pastor like no other. Once again, Grant Wacker, America's pastor, Billy Graham, and the shaping of a nation. For movies this week, we go to Argentina in a film from 2015 called Wild Tales. In this award-winning film, the writer and director, Damien Sisfran, collects six short stories. The stories are unrelated, 
except that they are all black humor and they all feature violent revenge. Just when you think things couldn't get crazier, the stories descend deeper into absurdity. In Pasternak, for example, everyone on a plane happens to know the pilot who exacts his revenge for how they all mistreated him. In another story, a waitress puts rat poison in the meal of a man who ruined her family. Another story of road rage goes very bad. Simone wages a feudal battle against municipal bureaucrats and ends up a hero in prison for his personal revenge mode. And in the proposal, he tells how a wealthy man paid off the prosecutor after his son committed vehicular manslaughter. The last story is a wedding from hell, which in fact ends with a redemptive kiss and dance. Wild Tales was nominated as Best Foreign Film in 2005. From Argentina, six stories called Wild Tales. And for the first Sunday after Easter, for poetry, we've posted a poem by a favorite poet of mine, Edwina Gately. It's called Beginnings. This poem, Beginnings, is from her book. The book is called There Was No Path, So I Trod One. Beginnings. Just tiny stirrings which disturb our even surface, prodding us into new and different shapes claiming their place on our horizons, stretching us where we would not go. Yet we must. Driven by life forces deeper than our dreams, we dare to rise and grasp towards the new young thing, not yet born, but insistent, like a tight seed bursting for life, carrying with it all the power of a woman's birthing thrust. Edwina Gately, a poem called Beginnings. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April the 12th, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.